All right, everybody, let's take our seats. We were joking in the office a couple days ago. We call it four minutes of family. I don't know if it's ever actually been four minutes. It's either like 30 seconds or 18 minutes, depending on who's preaching. So I was like, I'm going to make it four minutes today. And I think that was two. So I'm sorry if you feel like I robbed you. But if you're an introvert, you're welcome. You're welcome. Well, it's good to be here. Uh, my name's Hunter. For those of you who don't know me, I work with the youth here at Coastline. Where are the Coastline youth at? Love it. And as you can tell, I'm injured. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I was riding an electric bike on the Strand, and I hit a patch of sand, and I broke my collarbone. And it was bad, really bad. And then I got surgery. And when you get surgery for your collarbone, they say, ah, oh, six to eight weeks, you're going to be fine. My doctor was literally like, you'll be running in six weeks. You'll be great. And my wife and I went to the follow-up appointment, and he showed me the x-ray, which I've actually put up here for you guys. Um, so what you're looking at there is uh, a collarbone that's made purely of metal now and screws. So when he sat down with my wife and I, he said, look, this is significant. On a scale of one to ten, this is a ten. Uh, you know, you're going to be in a sling for like 14 to 16 weeks. This, this couldn't have been any worse. And you know, doctors are not supposed to say that, right? Like, it's always like, well, it could have been worse. You could have, no, this, this was it. It could not have been worse. I think the only way this could have been worse is if when I fell, I got COVID at the same time. Like, that's the only way that this could have been worse is if I fell and got the new variant. And then he's like, hey, bad news and even worse news. You have COVID and no collarbone anymore. But I, I just wanted to come up here and say thank you for um, all the prayers and generosity. My, my wife and I have been incredibly blessed by the meal train and the Grubhub. Uh, and, and thank you so much. It's just meant the world. You know, Coastline, it's a new church, and it's hard to, you know, figure out what this church is going to be. But I, b based on how you guys have been to us, I can tell you this church is going to be incredibly generous and kind. So please give yourselves a round of applause for that. I've been so, so blessed. Um, anyway, before COVID, uh, years ago, <laughs> great little transition there, uh, I was the high school pastor at Rolling Hills Covenant Church. And when I was yeah, five, six years ago, there, there was this TV show that, that came out on Netflix called 13 Reasons Why. Does anybody remember this TV show or 13 Reasons Why? Uh, some of us remember. For those of you who don't know what this show was, um, it, it was a show about a girl named Hannah Baker who was relentlessly bullied by her classmates, and uh, it ultimately caused Hannah to lose her life by suicide. So, so it was super intense, super tragic, super graphic, and it hit on a lot of hot topic issues that teens were going through, sexuality, gender identity, mental illness, self-harm, bullying. It was, it really had everything, as Stefan on Saturday Night Live would say. This show had everything. And like I said, it, it lit a fire in the ministry. It, it was very popular because it was really controversial. It was really, really controversial. And I, I had so many meetings with parents and emails and phone calls with staff and students and families, and, and they all just wanted to make sense of it. And they, they kept asking me, should we watch this show? Should we watch this show? On the one hand, it's very graphic, it's very dark, it's very intense, certainly not The Chosen, like it's a very deep, dark, intense show. So I can understand why there's a question, but it brings up a lot of things that teens are potentially going through. If you want to have a better understanding of what your student might be dealing with, this show could have potentially helped. So parents would come to me with the gray. They were saying, is this show appropriate for me? Is this show appropriate for my teen? Now, 
This is not unique. Every generation has these hot topic things, a TV show, a movie, a book, a podcast, something that comes out and Christians ask themselves, is this something that I should engage with? Is this something that I should watch? What should I do about this? Christians since the beginning of the faith have had to reckon with the question, how do I engage with the world around me? And and it's interesting because in and of itself, these things aren't bad. Like if you read the Da Vinci Code, you don't go straight to hell. It's, it's what these things signal. It's what these things message to people. And it messages a trajectory. It messages a direction that culture is going. And it's a, it's a direction that a lot of Christians feel uncomfortable with. The more movies and TV shows that, that are a certain way and say certain things and portray certain ideologies, it shows Christians that we live in a world that's hostile. We live in a world that's set up against us. And again, there's a lot of merit to that claim. Jesus himself says that the world hated him first and that the world will hate us. Paul says that we are not citizens of this world and that this place is not our home. Therefore, there will always be tension. There will always be frustration. And we will always have to ask the question, what do I do with the messages that the world sends? Do I retreat? Do I just put bubble wrap around my face and I never engage with anything outside of my comfort zone? Do I create an echo chamber where I spend time with people who look like me and talk like me and think like me? Do I completely separate myself from the world and what it has to offer and keep everything out of range so I never have to deal with them? Or inversely, do I just give in? Do I watch everything, consume everything, take in everything, make my faith look exactly like the world around me so I never have to ask the question, is this something I should engage with? Because the answer is always yes. These are the two sides of this conversation. But luckily there's a third way. And as we continue in the book of Acts tonight, we'll be in a familiar passage where Paul is at Mars Hill and he has to defend Christianity in front of the gatekeepers of ideology. Uh, For for our purposes, these are the people who create culture. These are the ones who who set the messages. They curate the ways they're communicated. They say what ideas, what signals go, how they go out, where they go to, and what ideas are worthy of entering the public sphere. And from this passage, we will see that Paul does something remarkable. He gives us a strategy as to how to engage with the world around us. He gives us a successful strategy, a necessary strategy for how we as believers can thoughtfully understand and engage and make decisions about the world around us. And as it goes, when Sean and Garrick have me preach, this is an incredibly long and complex passage. They're like, Sean's on a cruise, Garrick's preaching next week, you get the hard one. It's like, thanks guys. Um, And I'm telling you this in all honesty, I do not know how long this is going to take. Uh, We could be done in 10 minutes. I mean, there's no 6 p.m. I'm told I can preach as long as I want. So we'll see. We'll see. You don't want that. I swear to you, you don't want that. As nice as you think you're being to me, you don't want me to be up here talking. It will get nuts. Anyway, let's stand uh, and jump into Acts 17, uh, uh, chapter 16, verse, chapter 17, verse 16. If you're using a pew Bible, it's on page 1098, which I'm told is a tax form. So we are going to be in Acts 17, 16 through 34. Here is what God's word says for us tonight. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. 
Some, uh, some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him into the meeting of the Areopagus, which is how you say that, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and I looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he, gives himself, or he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit all the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so they would seek him and perhaps reach out to him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day where he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysus, a, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Demarius, and a number of others. This is God's words for us today. Let me pray. Lord, would you open our eyes, would you open our hearts, and would you let us receive what you have for us? We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. You may take your seat. So, Right out of the gate, I hope you can sense the tension of this passage. There is quite a bit of tension happening here. Let me give you some context. Now, the very first part in uh, Acts 17, 16, while Paul was waiting for them, them is a refer referring to Silas and Timothy, who are back up in Berea. You see, they're on this missionary journey. Paul was with them, but they, they experienced some hostility. They, they experienced some violence in Berea and Timothy and Silas sent Paul away to Athens. So this is an unexpected detour for Paul's journey. He didn't think he was going to be there. He didn't have a plan for Athens. This wasn't on the itinerary. But Paul is making lemonade out of lemons. He is spending time in Athens. But I want you to note that he's not just sitting in an Airbnb waiting for his friends. He's not just reading a book or checking out Netflix and, and, and hanging out. He, he's, he, he's actively doing something. And, and I would argue that he's living in tension. Because I can't speak for Paul and his exact feelings in this moment, but I can speak to the fact 
that a huge part of Paul's ideology and a huge part of Jewish ideology and a huge part of Christian ideology is being anti-idol. It's very hostile towards the idea of idols. And Paul was a rabbi. He was incredibly smart, and he knew the Hebrew Scriptures back and forth. And he knew that the Hebrew Scriptures painted a picture of Yahweh, a jealous God who hated idols. And if you want to know in the Old Testament how someone's relationship is with Yahweh, just look at their relationship with idols. Are they worshiping idols? Are they creating idols? Are they following idols? Chances are they're pretty far away from Yahweh. And if you forgot, the first two commandments deal directly with this. I have it up on the screen, Exodus 23 through 6. These are the Ten Commandments. This is the first one. You shall have no other gods before me. You can't put anything above Yahweh. And then the second one, you shall not make for yourself an image or an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. God will continue to punish generations after those who have worshipped idols, is what the text said, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. In other words, don't put anything above Yahweh, particularly things that you create with your hands. And look at what the text says in verse 16. He was greatly distressed, Paul was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. John Stott says that the city was submerged in idols. Think of the idea of being underwater, submerged with water. It's not water for Athens, it's, it's idols. The city was full of idols. And there are accounts of Athens at this time where, uh, you know, historians, philosophers say that there, there were thousands of idols per square mile. I mean, you, you could not escape the fact that this was a city that was built upon and full of idols. And in this instance, idols are statues, talismans, poles, various items, uh, tactile items, things you can hold or touch or, or interact with that some people believed contain the essence of a supernatural deity. But, but whether or not you believe that's one thing. Well, what's true is all of these were signals. All of these represented a god, and those gods represented an idea. Sex, money, power, violence, all of these things, sky, weather, all of these poles corresponded to a message. So while the scope is probably hard for us to understand, like thousands and thousands of poles in the Redondo Village that all represent something, that, that's difficult for us to understand. But it's not hard for us to understand a culture that is full of messages that are for other things. And so I want you to think of the tension that Paul is probably feeling at this point. He has been raised to be anti-idol. And his new faith, his new Christian faith, a huge carryover is he's still anti-idol. He's still anti-idol, but he is in this city full of Gentiles who are very pro-idol and the use of idols and the worship of idols. And, and, and here's the kicker. Paul believes that his mission on earth is to be a vessel for Jesus to the Gentiles. So he has this mission laid in front of him, and he's in this place that is so full of idols. If I were Paul, this would be a difficult and a defeating moment for me. I'm looking out at the most developed, the most sophisticated, the smartest, most progressive city in the known world, and realize, wow, I have a lot of work to do. 
I have a lot that I must do because this city is just full of idols. And if we keep going with the text in verse 17, Luke says that Paul goes into a synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks. This is fascinating because what Paul's doing is he's trying to find people to edify him. He's trying to find people that he has common ground with to help him in his mission. Think about it. These Jews don't like idols. These God-fearing Greeks don't either. Paul's distressed at all the idols. He goes into the synagogue, and I would argue that this was for Paul's ego. He says, hey, I need some help here. I'm not feeling like this is going to be a really successful journey. So Paul literally steps into an echo chamber. He literally steps into a building, into a place in a community who believes everything that he believes. Now that is so unlike Paul. If you read Acts or any of the New Testament letters, you know Paul doesn't like situations where he is comfortable. And, and look at the text. He goes into the synagogue, he goes into the echo chamber, and then what? He goes into the marketplace. This is the lion's den, where before he was in the echo chamber, now he's entered into the arena, the difficulty, the frustration, the tension of idolatry right in front of him. For Christians in this day and age, and, and, and for our day and age as well, this is a very foreign idea to us. We wouldn't go and worship at Wall Street, right? You, you know, there's St. Andrews, and then there's Chase Bank. But for the Greeks, for the Athenians, this is one and the same. The marketplace was the place where worship happened, but it, they, they worshiped idols, and they worshiped deities that the state had monetized. This is fascinating to understand that the Greek government had monetized God. And they had said, you can worship God if you pay for it. If you can put enough money for the deity, for the idol, for this, you can worship this God. So Paul enters in from the synagogue, and he comes and he reasons. The text says he reasons with those day by day who happen to be there. And, and, and it causes tension. It causes frustration. It causes a dilemma. We have here an actual problem where Paul is going in to this space, and he is saying, hey, there's a different worldview. There's a different thing. There's a different God that you can worship. And the text here in verse 18 is super important for us to get our heads around. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. I think when we read passages like this, and we see names in particular, we, we think they're placeholders. Like Luke had to hit a word count, you know, the, the, NIV, the Zondervan was like, we need some more words, man. He's like, oh, these, these are fake words, Epicurean, Stoic. But in reality, these are incredibly well-thought-out, well-reasoned, popular philosophical beliefs. Like, these are not placeholders. These are actual people with actual beliefs, actual understandings and worldviews who come to Paul who are frustrated. And they're frustrated for both a philosophical reason, and, and we'll see that in a second, they're frustrated because Paul's philosophy doesn't match with theirs, but they're also frustrated from an economic standpoint. Because like I just said, a, a huge part of the Greek economy was based on worshiping God. You would go and you'd give money, and then the state would take that money and they would use it. And so Paul is preaching this message of radical inclusivity. This uh, historian named Larry Hurtado has a book called Destroyer of the Gods, which is about ancient Greek views about Christianity. It's a fascinating book. Uh, only I would think it's good. But, um, like, don't read it. It's boring, but it's super good. But uh, in the book, he talks about how Christians were, they were, like, maligned for being radically inclusive. 
So Paul goes into this place and he preaches a, a, a good news, a philosophy, a system, a worldview that includes women and slaves and immigrants and orphans and everybody in between. And so these guys not only have a philosophical issue with God or with Paul, they have an issue with Paul because he is preaching about a God who will accept anybody. Like you don't need to be rich to worship this God anymore. So not only are they frustrated from a philosophical standpoint, their wallets are threatened as well. So, so the attention here, it's not only religious, it's economic as well. And I don't need to preach a sermon about what happens when you get in between people and their money. So these people, they are feeling the tension. They are feeling the anger. So this is not just a philosophical debate. This is a holistic concern. And they bring Paul in to uh, Areopagus, the societal elite, the gatekeepers of ideology, the philosophical 1%. They're They're a council of men who determined the messages of Athens. They were the cultural movers and shakers. And the text says here, but they're fairly polite. May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You're bringing strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. This sounds nice, but in reality, this is a debate. They brought Paul in to defend what he was doing. And I love this parenthetical in verse 21 that Luke adds. All the Athenians and foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking and listening to the latest ideas. It's like when you hang out with someone who really likes a podcast— it's like, this guy's just going to talk about this Coastline Covenant podcast again. Oh, this must be good. Oh, my gosh. So, so it's this idea that, man, these guys just keep talking about new ideas. So Paul is threatening that. And then verse 22, Paul starts this sermon in an incredible way. Paul then stood up in the meeting, and he said, People of Athens, I see in every way that you are very religious. You are very religious. You worship. You give money. You orient your life around things. But as Christians, we know this is not true religion. This is not a real faith. It is based on all of these other things. Verse 23, For as I walked around and I looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now the irony is that this God is unknown to the Athenians, but this God is known to Paul. This God is unknown to the Athenians, but this God is known to Paul. And then, he launches into a sermon that the only way you can describe it is it is incredibly culturally competent. Paul goes and he preaches this message that we just read, but almost every single line Paul gives up to a certain point is quoting Stoic and Epicurean philosophers. He goes and he says, oh, I will use your words against you, or I will use your words to compel you. So when Paul is in Athens, he's not just like walking around. He's not closing his ears. He's not closing his eyes. He's not saying, these messages are terrible. I'm not part of it. He's listening. He's observing. He is taking things in, and he is doing whatever he can to understand what the Athenians' worship looks like. And like I said, he launches into a sermon that literally quotes Stoic and Epicurean philosophers. And I will have these quotes on the screen for us so we can really see how competent Paul is in this culture. But what we have to just understand is that Paul was not afraid of understanding the dominant culture. This is hugely important for us this evening. Paul was not afraid of understanding the dominant culture. He, he spoke their language back to them, but he used, it, he used it as a means of criticism. He used it as a mean to critique, and he used it as a mean to compel. And this is so important. He didn't just take everything in and say, your, your stuff's great, awesome, see ya. He took everything in so he might compel people towards Christianity. So let's go to verse 24. This is Paul. The God who made 
The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. In Greek philosophy, the world is an incredibly important belief. Cosmos, cosmos. It's an incredibly important concept, and it's a deeply important word to the Stoics. Remember, Stoic and Epicurean philosophers grabbed Paul and started to debate with him. The Stoics had a major belief in the fixed order of the universe. They believed in like a one, two, three, A, B, C. That's how everything worked. And there's a Stoic quote, about once you can prove that God or gods exist, you can understand they or he has created everything. So Paul literally says that. The God who made the world and everything in it, the Stokes have been like, okay, okay, I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying. You're quoting our belief. You're saying that there's a creator who created everything. But then he names the deity, God, the Lord of heaven and earth, who does not live in a temple built by human hands. There's a famous Stoic philosopher named Plutarch who has a quote that says this, it is Zenon, who is the founder of Stoicism, it is Zenon's teaching that one should not build temples of the gods. There's an Epicurean joke where they mock people who go into temples and believe that you could actually see God. So Paul is incredibly, incredibly conversant, quoting things that he has seen in the marketplace back to these people. And again, if he had been dismissive, if he had said they're all going to burn, it's all nothing anyway, then he wouldn't be able to have this case for Christianity. And he doesn't stop there. Paul says that God is not served by human hands. We know as Christians that God invites our worship and our partnership, and we know he does not need them. And Seneca, a famous Stoic philosopher, says the following. I have the quote up on the screen. Do I? Yes. Let us forbid men to offer morning salutation and to throng the doors of the temples. Mortal ambitions are attracted by such ceremonies, but God is worshipped by those who truly know him. Let us forbid bringing towels and flesh scrapers to Jupiter and proffering mirrors to Juno, for God seeks no servants. Of course not. He himself does service to mankind. Basically, this philosopher is saying God doesn't need your worship, but he accepts it and he loves it and he's for it but he doesn't need it. And again, this is a secular, stoic philosopher. These people would have been incredibly, incredibly familiar with this idea, and Paul uses it to talk about Yahweh. He continues, he says, God himself gives life and breath and everything else. I have Seneca quote again, everywhere and to all he is at hand to help. Although a man hears what limits he should observe and sacrifice and how far he should recoil from burdensome superstitions, he will never make sufficient progress until he has conceived a right idea of God, regarding him as one who possesses all things and allots all things and bestows them without price. This is basically what Paul said. In God we live and breathe and have everything. And Seneca says, I completely agree. In this idea of God, in the God that I believe in, he gives all things, he possesses all things, and he bestows all things. And then Paul continues, from one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. And then right here, Paul does my job for me. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. He continues to just use the connections he found with the culture to say, look, you know what I'm talking about. If Paul had just gone to Athens and not paid attention, this would not have landed. He would have gone up and, and preached the gospel, and it might have been effective. We don't know, but instead he goes to a highly philosophical, a highly mindful community, and he says, let me use your own words to compel you. 
And that quote there, your own poet, is a guy named Aratus of Soli, who in this same poem talks about how humanity is not only close to God, but we are related to God as his kin. So you can see here at this point, Paul has highlighted several connections between Christianity and the dominant culture. He has highlighted several connections between philosophy and Christianity. But now he does something fascinating. He transitions into contradictions. Paul doesn't just look at the connections. He also has to expose the contradictions. And what follows are glaring contradictions. Things that Roman and Greek philosophy have no categories for. Things that these guys like Aristotle, Plato, Plutarch, they wouldn't have even been close to believing. And Paul wouldn't be Paul if he didn't expose these contradictions. Paul wouldn't be Paul if he said, we're all the same. Everything's great. Have a good day. See ya. He has to pull out the contradictions because that is Paul's missional worldview. He wants to compel people and he'll find the connections, but then he'll bring up the contradictions. First up, he brings up idols. He says this, we should not think that this divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. Paul is talking about idols. Paul is bringing up idols again, the original thing that frustrated him. Paul says that this, this city is submerged in idols, and God is anti-idol. Paul is anti-idol. God is not relegated to iron, stone, bronze, gold, silver. You cannot put the creator of everything into things. You cannot put the creator into creation. That is not how it works. God is the imager. He is not the image. And then God, Paul goes on to say that, that, he is, that God has looked over all this ignorance. Verse 30, in the past, God has overlooked such ignorance. And remember, he's talking to the philosophical elite, and he calls them ignorant. Love this guy. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof to this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Basically, Paul is saying, you might have been able to worship idols before. You might have not known that there was a deeper reality or, or a bigger truth or a God who's intimately involved in the world, but now you do, and he's proved that through his son, Jesus. Paul essentially says that Jesus has come, lived, died, and rose again, and that proves a few things. One, that God is actively involved in this world, and he has shown us exactly what it means to follow him. And two, anything beyond that's idolatry. Anything beyond that's idolatry, and we no longer have an excuse for that. And, and Paul, when he calls him ignorance, he's basically saying, it doesn't matter how brilliant you think you are, how just you think you are, and how right you think you are, because one day God will judge. This is beyond any category of Greek philosophy. I challenge you to read Plato tonight. You won't. I challenge you to read Aristotle tonight, or Plutarch tonight, or Seneca tonight, or Herodotus tonight. Do you know I was a philosophy major in college? You can read all of these guys, and you won't be able to find anything quite like this. It is a glaring contradiction. Paul uses connections, and then he highlights the contradictions. And I think we can pull a lot out of this story, but beyond anything else, Paul gives us an, uh, just an incredibly clear call. Care about the world around you and care about how it works. Be in dialogue with the world around you, especially as a Christian. Paul is clearly conversant with culture. He would not be able to pull direct quotes from poets, philosophers, and historians if he was just dismissive about the world around him. And I think that that is our call today as Christians, because Christianity is at its best when it dialogues with culture, and it's at its worst when it's dismissive. Christianity is at its best when it dialogues with culture, and it's at its worst when it's dismissive. And it's at its best when it shows how all truth is God's truth. Seneca, there was truth in that quote. 
Plutarch, Plato, Aristotle. There is truth in those quotes. Yes, it's not the full truth. It's not the only truth. It's not a truth you put above scripture, but there is truth. And Paul's not saying, plug your ears and pretend those don't exist. Paul's saying, use those things so that you might have a compelling case for Christianity in front of the dominant culture. Keep the connections important, but keep the contradictions consistent. That is the definition of a Christian cultural witness. Paul was not dismissive. If he was dismissive, he would have had no argument. If he didn't know anything about Athens or their gods or their idols or the way that their world worked, he would have gone in front of this council they would have either laughed at him, jailed him. Like, we've seen Paul go through the ringer, but look how the text ends. 32, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. It's the worst thing that Paul had to deal with in this passage, which for Paul is literally like winning the lottery. Oh, they're going to sneer? They're not going to whip me and throw me in jail? Hallelujah. Some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on the subject. They invite him back to continue the conversation. And look, some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. His case was so compelling using the dominant cultural connections that people actually came to faith. Two prominent people because they're named. In, in the book of Acts, if you see people named, that means they're prominent citizens. And these are prominent citizens who have come to faith based on Paul's case. So what can we say about this now? How, how does this help us in 2022 as Christians? I, I love what Paul says in verse 22, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. I hear Christians a lot say that this is like the least religious culture ever. Godless, secular society. Um, and I just don't think that's true. I, I don't think that this is the least religious culture ever. I think this is probably the most religious society has ever been. But you just have to define what it means to be religious. I think to be religious, it means you orient your life upon a story that gives you identity, meaning, and purpose. Author David Zoll says, religion is just believing in something that tells you that you are enough. And I think that you can look at the rise of dating apps and diet culture and social media and the way that people view pornography and the way that people eat in the way that the world is on Facebook looking for constant validation in echo chambers, right? Like, you can see that people are definitely religious. We're all looking for this story. And what Paul proves is that we have it. As Christians, we have this story. We have the story that we can actually orient our lives around. The story that actually gives meaning, that actually tells us we are enough. We are more devoted than ever. The world's more devoted than ever. And they're asking this question consistently. What does it mean to be me? What does it mean to be human? What does that mean for my community? And how does that even matter? Those are the questions they're asking. And we as Christians have the answers. And so the worst thing I think that Christians can do is look at how the world works and say, ah, bummer. We have our own thing over here. I think that's the worst things that Christians can do. Paul models here a strategy that I think we all should do our best to adopt. Understand the connections that we have to the dominant culture, but hold tight to the contradictions. Understand the connections, but hold tight to the contradictions. Understand how these people are asking these questions. Understand why they're asking these questions, and understand how they're being answered in the culture. Just, just understand those things. And it takes being attentive and listening, not being dismissive. And I think I see a lot of times with Christians, it's one or the other. Either Christians will be so pro-connection. They're like, my, 
my faith looks exactly like the world around me. I, I haven't said there's any contradiction because I want the best cultural witness. So everything I see and read, everything that my friends believe, everything that I hear on TV, man, that is my faith. And I'm just so pro-connection. If there's any contradiction, I don't want to hear it. I am so pro-connection. Friends, if that's you, that's a cultural faith that's more concerned with connection over contradiction. There are some incredibly distinct things about Christianity that gives it legs. What, what the Bible says about sexuality, life, fulfillment, happiness, supernatural, all of these things are distinct. And if we say that these things aren't, aren't contradictions to the dominant culture, then we are, we are selling out our faith. And I think those things help Christianity more than they hurt it. And I see a lot of people holding to the connections only. But I also see people holding only to the contradictions. People who think that everything's bad. They keep their blinders on and everything else is just a one-way ticket to hell. And again, that's a weak witness. We believe in the God of the universe who created everything, whose message and his power is not threatened by anything that culture can say. And that's what Paul believes. That's how he can wade into Athens. That's how he can go into the marketplace without fear because he knows the truth. He knows the contradictions. He is not unwilling to engage. And I think that that is our call as Christians. I think that's our call as Christians. Recognize the connections, hold to the contradictions, and have conversations. And so back to our original question, should I watch this, or should I listen to this, or should I read this? The question is actually, how can I think about how to think about these things? How can I think about asking these questions for myself? And I think when, when we, as Christians, when we're presented with anything, we have to ask ourselves some questions. We have to be thoughtful. We have to really parse out what's in front of us. We have to ask ourselves, are there connections to be made? Are there ways where we can thoughtfully engage with this? Are there things that will help the conversations that I'm going to have with people? Can the message behind this thing give me insight into the world around me, which may lead to a meaningful, compelling case for Christianity? But look, I'll say this. If your holiness is at stake, if your journey is marked by victory over certain things and everybody's talking about one thing that might compromise it, just leave it, right? Like I know in my life I've struggled with lust and things like that. So when something's like very like sex for it, I'll be like, yeah, you know, I don't need to watch that. It's not worth being part of the conversation if my holiness is at stake. And so I would compel you all as you're asking these questions to hold on to some discernment. I don't know what it is for you, but discernment is key because it's one thing to have the conversation, but it's another thing to risk your whole journey just to watch something. So, so that's, that's like the, the footnote here. Like use some discernment as you ask these questions because look, some stuff just isn't worth watching. Like Morbius, that movie looks terrible. No one should see that movie. That looks awful. But there are other things that like people say are good and we want to watch them as Christians. We have to ask ourselves, is this going to help me with the conversation that I'm going to have? Some things are so ripe with contradictions that it's just not worth it to engage. But ultimately, Ultimately, Paul gives this picture. Find the connections, hold the contradictions, and be conversant with the world around you. And remember why. Remember why Paul does all this. He knows that this world is desperately seeking a story that they can orient their life around, that they can connect with, that will give them meaning and tell them that they are enough. They are asking the questions, and the Bible has the answers. And it's all for mission. This isn't just for intake. It's for output. It's taking the messages that you hear and incorporating them into your mission. Our mission that in the day-to-day, -day, in our offices, our communities, our schools, in our groups, it, it, a lot of conversations start with like, hey, what are you watching? And you can't be like, the chosen, bye. 
you, you, you have to engage, right? You have to engage with what's happening in the world. I mean, like, you want to be known as that Christian who's just like, I don't watch what you watch. Or like, hey, I watched this thing that you, you recommended. I, there were some really good points in it. What did you think about this character's journey? Or you, you told me to listen to this record, this song, this podcast, whatever. They, they were putting some really interesting ideas out, and I liked this idea. What, what did you think of this? And then you now have a cultural witness of that person. Hey, I listened to your thing. Listen to my thing. It's called the coastline. It's great. Anyway. <laughs> all culture is just asking questions. And we have the answers. And scripture sits high above any question culture can answer, right? And it sits high above any answer that culture can give. But, but I think the helpful language is like remix. Like culture just kind of remixes what the Bible says about these things. I one time heard a film professor at Point Loma say, all movies are asking and answering questions, and a movie's quality depends on how well they answer their own questions. And I think that's a universal prompt. Everything, everyone is asking a question. What is the question, and how can you provide the real answer? Because the world's going to continue to put stuff out. Like, every time you refresh Netflix, it's like the Adam Project 6. You're like, where was 1 through 5? And it's like, it's there. People are into that stuff, and the world's just going to keep doing it, and we can engage with it, and we can be thoughtful about it, and we can use it for our mission. But if we put anything above God, if we look at things that the world puts out as the ultimate answers, friends, that's idolatry. And that's what Athens did. They looked at things they create and they said, ah, that's the ultimate answer. I'm going to worship my, you know, I'm going to worship this thing. I'm going to orient my whole life around this. That's idolatry, but that doesn't mean we can't listen. And at Coastline, that is our challenge, to listen to the world around us, to be engaged and not be dismissive. If you're friend, spending time with a friend who had a peanut allergy and they said, I'm hungry, and you're like, oh, here's Reese's peanut butter cup. They'd be like, you're not listening at all. The world is asking questions. And sometimes we're like, here's a Reese's. Like, listen to what the world is asking. And, and guess what? You have an answer. If you read scripture, if you, if you know the gospel, you have an answer to people's longings about meaning and life and what it means to be human. And, and I'll just say this to end. I think what we see here, beyond the tension that Paul's experiencing and beyond the cultural competency that Paul is showing, Paul is moving towards Athens in love. And it takes a lot of love to listen to people. Because Paul's anti-idol, but he's never anti-people. He's never anti who the person is and what questions they're asking. And it takes a lot of love to listen. It takes a lot of love to engage. It takes a lot of love to be in conversation. And so I think, Coastline, that is our call, to be a community that holds to the contradictions of the faith, looking here at the world and seeing what connections we have, and then having conversations with people so that we might compel them to Christianity. And that's the best witness that we can have. It's the best witness we can have when we can go into a world that's so saturated with content and say, yeah, but I have the real answers. You, you have a piece of the puzzle, but I can show you the whole thing. Let me pray. Lord God, it is quite an undertaking to love the world enough to listen to it. Yet your son modeled that perfectly. May we be sons and daughters that can lovingly step towards a world that's asking questions May we be able to listen compassionately, and may we be able to provide the world with your truth and with your answers. And God, as we take communion, I pray that we recognize that this is potentially the most controversial thing we can do as Christians. We lay down what we believe about the things that may divide us and proclaim via the bread and the cup that you are Lord. 
God, I pray for Coastline. I pray that we'd be a congregation that values the world around us, seeks connections, and holds to the distinct and category-shattering truth, God, that Jesus lived, died, and rose again. We pray this all in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.